welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Welcome to this, the inaugural installment of Disinformation Wars. Today, I'm speaking with Ambassador Alberto Fernandez. Alberto is currently the Vice President of Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute, a position he returned to last summer after a three-year stint as head of the U.S. government's Middle East Broadcasting Networks. Previously, he had served as Coordinator for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications at the State Department for three years, capping off a long and illustrious career in the U.S. Foreign Service. I really can't think of a better person to kick off this series of conversations about new media, old media, disinformation, and the implications for U.S. policy. Alberto, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, thank you so much uh, again. And let, let's jump right in. Uh, you've been what we might call a counter disinformation practitioner for quite a long time now. Can you talk a little bit about your early experiences in this domain when you headed up the State Department's Bureau of Strategic Counterterrorism Communications during the Obama administration? What was the mission set back then? What was the office trying to achieve? And in your estimation, was it successful? Well, I guess I, first of all, I mean, I've been in the field my entire diplomatic career. I was what was known as a public diplomacy officer. So even before CSCC, the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications, kind of in that business, uh, you know, Sandinista, Nicaragua, or in the Middle East, or whatever, it's, it's, it's not a new thing. The idea behind the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications, which just now has a different name, was that there should be a kind of one-stop shop for jihadist propaganda, for the U.S. government to study, come up with counter-strategies, uh, inform, coordinate government-wide efforts in this field. That was the concept. So the concept was sound. The, the actual implementation was less so. Uh, as you can imagine, there's tremendous bureaucracy in the U.S. government. And so there was, there was and continues to be, in my understanding from the people who had it now, interagency, infighting, bureaucracy, and that, that's that been a problem since the beginning, although supposedly it you know, was supposed to be the, the organization which oversaw how to fight jihadist propaganda. And of course, what happened after I left, eventually they expanded it to include uh, Russian, Chinese, Iranian propaganda. But it seems you know, I would say that I, I don't think it was successful against jihadist propaganda. Some good things were accomplished, but overall it was not a success. Yet the function of having a place to think about this, fight it, suggest certain strategies makes a lot of sense. But my, my sense is that the uh, neither the Obama, Trump, and so far, Biden administration know exactly what to do with this uh, this operation. I mean, they kind of understand it intellectually, but it, it steps on a lot of feet, a lot of equities in within the State Department and other places. So it's a it's kind of a, a problem child, although focused on a very important issue. No, I think that's precisely right. Uh, and the office, which has now been expanded and now is known as the Global Engagement Center, is, I think, precisely the way you described it. It's very much treated as a Swiss army knife in which it's used to counter not only jihadi propaganda, but also Russia and China and Iran and, and uh, the 
the watchword of being forced to do everything is that you're not an expert in anything. Yeah, right? that's right. And of course, they have a lot more money than they had when I was there, which is good because money gives you some power in Washington. But uh, it's, it's, um, it's difficult, although it's, you know, it's almost 11 years old now. Uh, reverting back to the the original mission set, the the countering the jihadi uh, ideology mission set. Uh, as you noted, this was the the core focus, the primary focus. And back then, back when you were in charge, uh, the focus was overwhelmingly on Al Qaeda and its global media presence. But as you've written elsewhere, Al Qaeda has been eclipsed in recent years by the rise of the Islamic State in uh, in many fields, but in particular in terms of media messaging. You've written a lot about this and in particular the sort of the widespread appeal of the ISIS message and how it sort of resonated and ricocheted across the Muslim world. Can you explain what you mean by that? I mean, the the idea of a unique media package and why should ISIS be treated as this uh, singular actor in when it comes to information warfare? Well, when, uh, when, when I began at uh, CSCC, uh, it was about Al-Qaeda, but that was, I was there when actually ISIS rose, you know, and uh, I was there when the caliphate was declared and all of that stuff. You know, the, the ISIS message was revolutionary, is revolutionary in two ways, in content, what they actually said, and in terms of how they did it, in terms of delivery systems and modes of operation, it was revolutionary in both ways. It, it, in content, it was uh, it captured the moment. It was kind of a, a modern retelling of a potted, skewed version, a Salafist jihadist version of Islamic history. Caliphate by way of Call of Duty, Hollywood, and identity politics. The things that stir the heart pride, revolution, victory, also sex, violence, uh, flags, slogans, uniforms, the kind of, of a, a counterculture, very powerful symbolism and uh, rich imagery and all of that, which in an age when people often feel unmoored and dissatisfied and don't know who they are, is extraordinarily powerful. You know, we think in our age, especially in the West, right? We're beyond all of that. We're beyond religion. We're beyond flags. We're beyond, we're like homo economic, economicus. And we don't realize that there are these very powerful things which still exist, which still move people. And ISIS very successfully tapped into this in, in a youthful way. So the content was really powerful, both in Arabic and in non-Arabic languages. And then the means that they kind of intentionally and unintentionally, like they intentionally plotted to do it, some of it was just sheer luck on their part. Uh, the use of social media, the use of swarms of followers, uh, and a slaughter porn aspect of what they were doing, the very outrageousness of what they were doing is something that's been copied not just by other jihadists, like you could say that they transformed Al-Qaeda, their rival, former parent. They transformed or influenced Al-Qaeda's propaganda, but they also influenced non-Islamic propaganda. They influenced the propaganda and modes of mobilization of uh, far-left and far-right activists and uh, fanatics in the West and in other places as well. So they had very much a kind of tremendous influence in the propaganda space. And of course, the problem is the ideology per se was not really defeated. 
and the socioeconomic conditions which led to the rise of ISIS in the Middle East are still there. They haven't changed. What changed was that they created this powerful mode, you know, mechanism, which depended on victory. It depended on kind of the sense of progress on the battlefield or progress in killing people in Paris and blowing stuff up here and there. So that kind of victory narrative couldn't be sustained, at least now, because of the battlefield defeats and decapitation strikes that happened against them. But the ideology and the communication system is still there and is still churning stuff out. So it can always replicate itself and and serve. That's right. But it's also a resilient threat. We're now in what officials uh, have taken to calling the post-caliphate era. Since March of 2019, we've seen the physical destruction of the ISIS territorial caliphate in Iraq and Syria. But what we're still seeing is a massive presence by the group on social media, on messaging apps, and on the like. So obviously, the setbacks that they've suffered in recent years have impacted their message and the resonance of that message globally. What's ISIS saying now? You know, is this uh, still effective as a recruitment and mobilization tool? Yes. I mean, the, you know, the footprint is so large at its height that the remnant or the echo of its actions is still very large. The amount of sheer content that they produced is is still large, is still radicalizing people. And it shouldn't surprise us, you know, Anwar uh, al-Awlaki of al-Qaeda is still radicalizing people 10 years after his death. He, he's still influencing people beyond the grave. So you could say dead ISIS, I'm putting that in quotation marks, as ISIS is not dead, still has real power. I recall a case of a young man, a 17-year-old boy in, uh, in uh, Jupiter, Florida in 2018, inspired by ISIS videos, uh, radicalized by watching ISIS videos at a time when ISIS videos are no longer readily available and stabs three people, kills one of them in his house. He began by being fascinated by KKK, white supremacist propaganda and anti-Semitic propaganda that he found online and stuff like that. And he segued very seamlessly from, you could say, far-right anti-Semitic propaganda to becoming a adherent of the Islamic State. And he tried to kill three people. This is in 2018 when it was clear that ISIS was on its way down. So the messaging today is basically about the survival of the Islamic State, that basically the West, the Americans, the enemies have thrown everything that they could at ISIS. It's still there. It's still on the ground. It's still active. They try to do what they can, obviously, to make themselves look bigger than they are. In the absence of great victories, say, in Syria and Iraq, which is where build their center, they'll point to, you know, victories in, say, Nigeria or Mozambique or Congo is treated as a great victory against the infidel in ISIS propaganda, you know, kind of making up for advance on the ground in Syria and Iraq or killing a bunch of Westerners, right? Those two things are what they would prefer to do. So it's kind of you make do with what you have. You churn out lots and lots of stuff to show that here I am, we're still active, we're here, you know, famous motto of ISIS, here to stay and growing. Well, they're actually not growing, but they kind of are in some places. 
So they kind of exaggerate the growing part, focusing on Africa per se. And then the here to stay part, obviously they can say, yes, that they've, they've survived. And even though they're much smaller than they were in their height in say 2015, they're much larger than they were than when they started out, than when their rise started out. So they're well positioned for the next catastrophe, the next disaster, the next implosion of governments or of events in the region, you know, uh, and they seek to, to be in that ungoverned space either on the ground in places in the third world where they can take advantage of it or the ungoverned spaces of social media as well. Let's fast forward a little bit. Your most recent role in government, which you held until last summer, was that of president of MBN, the Middle East Broadcast Networks of the U.S. government. And this is the U.S. government's dedicated broadcasting towards the Middle East, not the entire Muslim world, but the Arab-speaking world of the Middle East uh, in terms of both television and radio. Those channels don't function the way other US government organs such as Voice of America do, however. They're private entities and they operate very much like startups. Why are they structured this way? Uh, where does this structure come from? Does it make a difference in terms of the efficiency of how we broadcast? And in your experience, was MBN more nimble and effective than its counterparts? Well, you have five uh, government funded broadcasters. You have two that are run by the government, and you have three who are basically grantees or contractors of the U.S. government. The two government ones are Voice of America and the, um, the Cuba Broadcasting, the Marti, Radio TV Marti. And then the three uh, grantees are Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Prague, and Radio Free Asia. And then the one that I had at Middle East Broadcasting Networks, which is in Arabic. The grantees, by their very nature, have greater flexibility in the way they're run because they're not government entities. So for example, it's a lot easier to fire somebody at a grantee than it is to fire a U.S. government employee. Uh, you know, people that get tenure in government and the civil service, and it's a very complicated process to get rid of people. It's not a complicated process to get rid of people in a, uh, for example, MBN was in Virginia. Virginia is a place where it's easy to fire. So that gives you great flexibility when it comes to personnel and money which is what you want to have. You want to be able to be nimble, to adapt to the market, to stop bad practices, legacy practices or legacy programs of the past and shift to meet a changing uh, marketplace. So yes, my, my sense is, uh, my strong belief, having done it for three years, is that all U.S. broadcasting should, should use the grantee model. Yes, you can have accountability that way. You can have a lot of accountability, but it allows people that the government puts in charge of these entities to be a lot more flexible in how they run their operations and responding to, to rising threats. During your tenure at MBN, you enacted a great deal of not just personnel reform, but also content reform. You added new shows and you scrapped old ones and you tried to engage with Arab publics in different ways than the US government had tried to in the past. What were you seeking to achieve there? What, what, was, the, what was the goal? What were the currents you were trying to tap into? Well, I was basically trying to change everything. Um, you know, it was kind of a mess. You know, it was old and tired what they were putting out. They'd had the same leadership for over a decade. It was dull, stale. Technologically, it was not advanced. So it didn't look, only the content, it didn't look as good. One of the things that shocked me was, for example, comparing RT Arabic run by Russia and our station and seeing how RT Arabic just looked a lot better. 
So there was a lot of technical work that had to be done, kind of new sets and, you know, new personnel and uh, all the technical stuff. But, but there was also a, the content problem was essential. You needed to look better, but you needed to, there needed to be a reason for people to watch you. For example, this was a network, uh, I'm talking about Alhora Television, that had four hours of news. So, you know, that's not really very significant. So it was, you know, it was, it was not Nat Geo, it had a lot of canned documentaries, not as good as Nat Geo, but kind of not Nat Geo, and not Al Arabiya, Al Jazeera, all news all the time. So we went from four hours of news to 16 hours of news a day. We had this weird situation that basically the office was run on Eastern Standard Time in the United States. So one complaint I heard in the region is, was that we all, it always looked like we were behind. Why? Because we were behind. Because we were waking up and it was the afternoon in the Middle East. And then we were beginning to cover the stories that had been percolating during the morning in the Middle East. So we added a full-fledged news bureau in Dubai so we could have news in the region, from the region, while we in the, in the United States were sleeping. You know, we started an op-ed page so that we could have opinion. We could have people saying things and saying aggressive things and saying their own views. And why did we do that? We did that because we wanted to have content, programs, news, all of that, feed into a sense that this is a network that stood for something, that had a specific worldview that you know, if you want to look at it, there is a reason for you to do that. It's not that it's like a dull, safe version of what the other guys were doing. In other words, I wanted to embrace the idea that this was the American network. My sense was I wanted it to be more American, more freewheeling, so that we could aggressively, for example, cover issues relating to freedom of expression, to uh, values and a kind of specific worldview. So we wanted to be clear about what we stood for, that we were anti-Islamist, anti-Jihadist, anti-Russia, China, and Iran, but in favor of the truth, no matter what, no matter if it was uh, critical news about the United States, although we also emphasized that we're unabashedly pro-American. We wanted to be that way. So there was a tension there, but I think we, we were able to balance it and we caught attention, uh, uh, the audience's attention. And the best thing is that that's not my view because we made all these changes the first two years I was there. And then the, our parent agency, the U.S. government's agency, which oversaw us in 2019, did a series of polling operations in the Middle East, but country by country. And what it showed throughout 2019 into early 2020 is that as a result of the changes that we've made, the polling showed we gained audience share, in some places doubling audience share, in some places having a majority of the market, in many places, in not actually in every place, there was nowhere in the region that we could see our numbers go up. In some places, our numbers, for example, in Iraq, where MBN's numbers have been declining for a decade, our numbers went up in, in, in 2019. So we did it, and it was successful. Well, and to that point, part of the success has to do with understanding that global publics are different. The Arab world in particular is very predisposed to long conversations. And of course, to, to heated debate. And that's mode, though, is very different from the new sound bites that we're accustomed to seeing and hearing here in the United States. So looking forward, 
how, how do we calibrate our outreach properly? How do we better capture the Arab mind, so to speak? Well, I mean, the question there is you, you, you want to catch, capture them for what reason? <laughs> you know, what is it that you want to do? I think there's a temptation sometimes by officials, especially officials who have very little vision, to say, well, we just want to put the news out. We're not, we're not like those, the bad guys, right? We're not like Russia or Al Jazeera, which is, you know, playing uh, media games. We're, we're like CNN or NBC News or something like that, which, of course, is ridiculous because CNN, NBC News, Fox News, whatever, have a worldview and they push a worldview. So the idea that you, you are free of ideology, that you're free of context is a mistake. And so when you're talking about the region, you have to stand for something and you have to decide what that is. So it's not just about being, uh, uh, you know, reporting news fairly and, uh, you know, in an ethical manner and being professional. That goes without saying. But beyond that, you know, it's what is your editorial line and what is your worldview? And I think people in Washington generally have no clue about what that should be when it comes not just to the Arab world, but to the world in general. Or if they have clue, they have clues, they extrapolate the um, uh, you know the worldview of the ruling tribe in uh, in their little part of the world, that tribe that lives between Arlington, Virginia, and the island of Manhattan. As this is the way the world is, and this is the way the world should think. Uh, well, yes, but no. All right. Final question. From your perch, having watched the information landscape morph and change over the last several years, what's the one piece of advice that you would impart to policymakers who are trying to get a handle on the problem of information and disinformation now? What do they need to understand about today's media environment? And what does the United States need to do to better compete in this arena? I would say two things. Number one, I think of there's an old Cuban proverb that says, uh, the shrimp that sleeps winds up in a cocktail. And what I mean by that is that we need to wage aggressively and remorselessly information warfare against our adversaries. They are doing it against us. We need to do it against them. So by hook or by crook here or there using this method or that method, there is a kind of hybrid warfare, hybrid conflict, whatever you want to call it, that's being waged against us by our adversaries. And we need to respond in kind. And the, again, the idea that we can somehow do that by replicating, you know, Walter Cronkite type news is, I think, naive. So that's the first thing. We need to win this fight whether we want to be or not. The second part, I think, is more complicated, which is we're going in America through tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous convulsions, tremendous turmoil about who we are, what we are, what we stand for, what we believe in. And we know what we're against, you know, we know who we're against, but we do need to have, uh, we don't need to have uniformity. We don't need to have, you know, we don't need to put out a kind of a false American narrative, but we do need an American narrative that is a kind of undergirds everything that we does that is attractive. And it can't be an American narrative that is about basically national decline and self-loathing. So we need something better. That's not to say, like I said, that's not be all or, or end all to have a kind of a, a national narrative. This is who we are. This is America. 
and and certainly the world is 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 very complicated and and we have to kind of respect the the reality in different parts of the world we have to be careful about seeking to impose as i said that kind of artificial view of america's this way and you have to be this way but there has to be some kind of happy medium where we know who we're against and we know who we are and there's a kind of convergence that happens there that builds the kind of uh, picture of what we want to do in the world, in the space, in the propaganda space or in the public diplomacy space. Alberto, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. And uh, let's chat soon. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.